0: So, good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. We will be in the book of Philemon. So, if you have the exact same Bible that I have, that is on page 1202. I doubt that that's the case, though. So, Philemon, it's before Hebrews. If you get to Hebrews, it's right there. If you're at Titus, you have to flip over one more page. And this is a continuation in our Easter series where we are um, doing the gospel according to somebody. The good news according to somebody that either had some kind of interaction in the life of Jesus or was affected directly by the gospel. So two weeks ago, Tim Deering from Netzer, Parker Ford Church, came and he did the gospel according to who? Peter. Peter or Simon, depending on which way you want to go. Last week, Jade did the gospel according to who? Pilate, which was kind of a plan, it's kind of like the false gospel according to Pilate, which was cool. Um, And this week we are doing the gospel according to Philemon, meaning what is the good news that we hear in this interaction with the gospel in Philemon, and also this other guy, Onesimus, which we will get to know about a little bit in a minute. So how today is going to roll with the sermon is that I'm going to give a little backdrop, a little backstory, give some reflections, and then we're just going to read through the book and I'll be touching on some interesting points from within the book. Yes, yes. So to start, though, I want to give you, I'll, I'll recap this at the end, okay? So we're asking, what is the gospel according to Philemon? Like if we were to succinctly say what are the, what is the good news according to this book, what would we say? This is what I would say in studying and reading over the text. And I'll get back to this um, at the end of the message. So the gospel according to Philemon is that the love of God— is so big and so grand and so majestic that it plays out even in our own households. It plays out even in our own households. The gospel, according to Philemon, is that any debt you had is paid through the tangible and spiritual work of the cross. Now, we're not we're specifically thinking spiritual debt there, but there is some interesting play on words in there uh, in Philemon that we'll get to. The gospel, according to Philemon, is that being touched by grace sends us into risky situations to pursue something better than freedom. And what that better thing is, is belonging. Is belonging. Ministers of reconciliation can use broken systems to bring about redeeming life. And finally, change and transformation are possible even with our embedded worldviews. And what I mean by embedded worldviews is that each of us has things that we believe in that um, we don't realize we believe in or don't realize that they could be off. And you'd be like, oh, I don't have those. But that's the point. You don't really know that you have those worldviews. You don't realize you have those biases. You don't realize you have those um, kind of thoughts or sights towards that and that there's anything maybe off about that, that they're so embedded in who we are as people or as a person, it just doesn't register. So it would be like speaking a different language almost. So, But the gospel is able to change and transform even those deep places that we don't even know need to be changed or transformed. So with that being said, let us pray and then we'll get to the backstory of Philemon. I'm going to pray in an interesting way. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your baby. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't actually step on the baby. Um, so Father, as I consider the message for today, and I consider the work of the cross, and I consider the tangible reality of the gospel and Philemon and Onesimus' life, I was um, brought to the picture of this cup right here, and specifically <laughs> how, not dirty, but how mangled up it is. That as we dipped your body into the juice, that parts of it fell off and it doesn't look appetizing, if I were to look at it. And yet this is the reality of our relationships and the fact that you are in the midst of all of this, that you are the bread, that you are the blood, and that you're in the midst of these complicated situations. You're in the midst of these simple situations that we make more complicated than they need to be. And there's this messiness um, that actually the gospel brings. There's a messiness that the gospel brings into our lives because of what it is calling us to do, how it is speaking love and grace and truth to us. Um, And so, Father, may we remember this cup in the way that it is now after communion also. That it's messy, it doesn't look appetizing, I would not want to drink out of it, and yet it is still your cup. And it's still your blood, it is still your body. So I would ask that you would bless this time for us, just to hear the story of Philemon, and also speak to the tangible ways that we need to be um, enacting this grace that's in Philemon into our own lives. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of God's people. Said, Amen. So yeah, if you get if you get a chance, take a look at this, um, maybe at the end of service, just to see. Um, it's kind of like an abstract. Hi, baby. It's kind of like an abstract uh, thing going on there. So a little bit of backstory for Philemon, um, if I can summarize it in 250 words, which is actually longer than the book is, um, is that so Philemon, he was a well-to-do Gentile. He wasn't Jewish, which is important because for the most part, Jews didn't have slaves during the first century. Gentiles did. Romans did. So he was a well-to-do Gentile, Philemon, who was from Colossae, uh, Book of Colossians, uh, and he became a Christian through Paul's ministry. And because Philemon was on the upper crust of society, because he was wealthy, he, like everybody else in his social status category, had servants, had slaves. They had, he had slaves. And so one of those slaves was named Onesimus. Everybody say Onesimus. And this is almost kind of the gospel according to Onesimus rather than the gospel according to Philemon. But the interplay is really important. So Onesimus was a slave, and he had a falling out with his master Philemon, but we don't necessarily know what that falling out was. We're not sure if Onesimus was being harsh with um, uh, Philemon or Philemon was being harsh with Onesimus. The the text does not say, and we don't have any other record to necessarily point us in that direction. But there was some kind of falling out, and in the midst of that falling out, what did um, Onesimus do? Well, he took the... um, the wisdom of the Steve Miller band, and he took the money and ran. Um, That's a 70s song if people are like, thank you, Mike, for the thumbs up. (laughs) Everybody else is like, who's the Steve Miller band? So he took the money and ran. So there was some kind of fleeing away from from Philemon, and there was also some kind of, probable some kind of theft that was involved in that as Onesimus, the slave, fled from Philemon. And so Paul is in the middle of this social conundrum because... In the midst of this, Onesimus runs, finds Paul, whether intentionally or by some random act of grace, in prison. Paul is in prison. What ends up happening is that uh, Onesimus and Paul connect. Onesimus then becomes a Christian. Onesimus is a Christian, knows Paul. Paul is a Christian, obviously. And Philemon is a Christian that knows Paul. So Paul is now in the middle of this really interesting social gospel experiment where we have these two brothers that have some kind of reconciliation that need to happen and you have this big overarching broken system of slavery in the midst of it. What is he going to do? And he's going to he's gonna have to kind of um, create a path that was not yet created, right? Like this is, this is going to be new stuff and it's, not, it's literally not going to change the world at this time. But it will change the household. And that's really important. You know, again, we said that the, the gospel, according to Philemon, is that the gospel is so grand and big and huge and majestic that it even affects us in our households. Sometimes it's easy to keep these big movements of God or of the kingdom of the church. And there's these things that we talk about and there's these events and everything else. But what about the people that we touch in our everyday lives? What about the people you go to school with? What about your own family? What about the strangers on the streets or the people here that uh, we might not be uh, close, but that we're still the body of Christ together? We're still strangers, but we're getting to know each other. What does it mean for the gospel to affect that? So if I, uh, so Paul is in the middle of this between Philemon and Onesimus. He's in the social conundrum. Um, and so Paul and his co-worker Timothy, who you know from scripture, write a letter and send it probably through uh, Tychicus. He's probably the deliverer and the performer, which we'll get to in a minute, of this letter. And so this letter actually has a style to it. While you could say that it's an epistle to Philemon, the style of it and the grammar and the Greek is actually different. It's actually a letter of recommendation. And so what would happen is that back in Paul's day, especially with uh, the Greeks but also the Jews, there would be these people that were very practiced in rhetoric or in language or of the use of language to do these certain things and persuade People towards certain ends. And Paul uses that form, a letter of recommendation. He uses rhetoric, language, cues, kind of play off of words all throughout this letter in order to reach Philemon with what he wants to say. So, is it an epistle? Yeah, kind of, but it's more distinctly a letter of recommendation. Um, and it, the, notable, the notable difference between the way Paul uses this and the way that the Greeks would have used it is that the Greeks, especially the Stoics, would write these high and lofty letters and then he would be, they would be like, ain't I so smart that I was able to do all this wordplay with all this other stuff. Like, it was almost like part of writing a letter was to show how cool you were or to how smart you were. Paul is not using that here. He is using something that was uh, contextual of his time in order to reach a hearer that would have understood that kind of language. And it wouldn't have been manipulative. It wouldn't have been um, dishonoring. It would have been the way that the upper crust, the educated people, would have been able to most hear and receive that kind of stuff. So as we read through the book, there's a lot of times where Paul is like, I could say this, but I'm not going to say this. You know, it's like, no offense, but kind of language. And he's not, he's not trying to manipulate, but he is trying to bring the hard gospel challenge with grace and love in a context and in a way that um, Philemon would be able to hit, hit on, to be able to receive in his heart and his mind and the other people around him. So that's the backstory, and that's where we're at. And Paul's kind of probably taking the idea of um, Jesus' words, you know, be, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, Here. And so that should make us ask the questions, what kind of creative ways can we in our society be using language, be using visuals, be using art in order to convey gospel truths or the beauty of the gospel in our day and age? We don't need to necessarily be afraid of the ways that the world is using stuff, but we need to use them in the way that God would have us use them. Some of the stuff, yeah, we need to throw to the side but what are some other things that we can actually redeem and use for the glory of God in the midst of it? So that's the backstory. One of the other parts of the backstory, though, is the fact that this is a letter to a slave owner, Philemon, about his runaway slave, Onesimus. And so I just want to briefly mention a couple things because our idea of what slavery is in the 18th and 19th century does have similarities with Roman slavery but it also has differences. And so we don't want to take what we think we know about how the structure of slavery is in the first century Rome and just automatically think it's from the 18th and 19th. Is that right, Barry? It was 18th and 19th century earlier? I'm going to just say 18th and 19th century. Pretend that's historically accurate. Of the Americas was then put, put on there. Like, we don't want to do that. We want to hear it. We don't want to dismiss it. But we also don't want to just say, well, I know exactly what this is like because we've gone through it as a nation. Our iniquity with slavery is iniquity. Their iniquity with slavery is iniquity. They're similar, but they're not the same. Similar, but not the same. So two different time periods, two different cultures. So slaves in Rome, so I'm just going to kind of do a, a a fact sheet. So slaves in Rome at times, had more socioeconomic advantages than those of peasants. They had more opportunity, depending on their master, to be promoted within their field. And so you can see a picture up here. There wasn't just this one kind of cookie-cutter thing that a slave would do. They would be in all levels of society. They would be teachers and tutors. They would be chefs. They would be military um, trainers. They would be all kinds of different things. There wasn't like this... um, lowest level common denominator, this is what you do. They were throughout life. 30% of all the people in Rome at this time were slaves. Various levels of where they worked. Uh, Some slaves were known as volunteer slaves, where they would choose, usually because of economic oppression, to enter into the system. So they actually had a better chance of making uh, a living by giving over their their God-given human rights in order to uh, take care of their family, even though they probably weren't connected to their family. And so they would volunteer to be put into this system for economic gain. Some slaves could buy their freedom and slavery in Rome wasn't racist or xenophobic. People from all different backgrounds and ethnicities were part of that system. So there wasn't like this people group were the ones that were the slaves or this people group were the ones of the slaves. That was, that was vast and it was different and um, it wasn't just, uh, again, cookie-cuttered into one single type of ethnicity. One of the biggest differences in Rome, Roman culture compared to America's culture was that it had a different overarching value. So this would be almost like an embedded worldview, something that is just so part of your mind thinking you don't even necessarily consider it for positive or for negative. The most valued principle in America culture at the time was that of emancipation, that of release, that of I am free. I am free. That's a good thing. In Rome, however, it would have been connected to the idea of identity. Whom do I belong to? Or is it who do I belong to? To who do I belong to? To whom do I belong to? Thank you. It's not right. Who do I belong to? (laughs) <laughs> so you have the difference in values between I am free compared to who do I belong to. Now think about us right, right now in Cornerstone. We would sing songs about I'm no longer a slave to fear, uh, freedom reigns in this place, um, all good things, all true from Scripture. These are, most of those things are right directly from Scripture. But what if we sang a song that was like I am a slave to God? I am a slave to righteousness. Would we kind of be in this place where we would see what the text is actually saying and the song that we're actually saying, singing is actually a positive thing? Or would we be like, I'm nobody's, I'm, I'm not God's, I, I can be maybe a servant or a son, but yet there's distinct parts, especially in Paul to the Romans, where he says to us that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness. And he also goes on further to say, you're no longer a slave either, you're also a son. But even hearing that language, what, what is God or the Holy Spirit trying to say about this binding relationship? That I am a slave to righteousness. And not to, just to dismiss it, because it doesn't fit with my worldview. Because it's like, why would I even think about that? I am free in Christ, which we read earlier, true. But what was Paul, what was the Holy Spirit trying to say through that? So put that in your mind and turn it over. So those are a couple different um, things between Roman slavery compared to our default views, maybe. Um, But there are definite similarities also. So um, slaves in Rome and in the Roman culture, uh, they were considered property. They were people, but they were also property. So they were exploited. They were objectified. They were tools. They were objects. They were used to have financial gain for their master. So it's not like there was any kind of uh, uh, candy coating on slavery necessarily in the Roman culture. They had different and lower legal and social statuses. So even the men would not be considered men or boys. There would be a different social status that was somewhere in between there because if they were considered men or boys, they could inherit something. Or if they were men, they could actually have a family of their own. And that was typically not allowed. Um, in the Roman system. You could do things to Roman slaves that otherwise you would be prosecuted for if you did to a free person, a free man or a free woman. If a slave ran away and was caught, the owner had every right to severely beat them or to kill them with no legal repercussions. Like there wouldn't have been anything that would have, the the authorities wouldn't have batted an eye at it. Uh, Your slave ran away? Okay, well, you can do with him. He's, He's a, you know, just get rid of them if that's what you want to do. Or Beat him severely, whatever you want to do. There wouldn't have been an empathy towards that because they were still seen as objects and tools. Many were bought and sold on the slave auction block where they would stand naked before the purchasers and buyers to see what they would get. So don't picture me up here naked. But somebody would be put up here. They would be stripped of all of their clothes because I, I as a slave and an object in this culture, you need to see what you're getting, how much you want to pay for me. You need to make sure I don't have any malformities or huge wounds that I'm going to have to dress that up. I'm going to have to fix that. That's going to cause me three months of labor lost. And so they're up on this slave block being looked at, being uh, criticized and judged as objects. And they also typically, not always, had a, um, a necklace that they wore. And on that necklace was either some kind of papyrus inscription uh, or some kind of clay tablet that had their benefits and their deficiencies on it. So Justin is good at cleaning out gutters. Justin is not good at uh, lifting heavy things. There was this, this list of things like you would almost have on a, um, like if you go to Home Depot where it tells you all the things that this thing can do, except also the negative of that, where it was like, hey, this guy can't do this. So if you want him to do this specific thing, no. So they, were, so they were scrutinized on that auction block. They were looked over thoroughly for their strengths and weaknesses, for their utility and their deficiencies. Uh, owners could not release slaves on their own. They actually had to appear before some kind of court law, and when they were there, they had to pay a freedom tax. So it wasn't that you could even just buy a slave and then set them free. What you would have to do is that you would have to go through paperwork, be like, I bought this slave, Um, And then you as the owner would need to pay a tax to release that person. So it wasn't even that you could be this rich, wealthy do-gooder, buy slaves, and then release them back out into the public. You need to go through a process of that. And the the biggest thing, as um, can be maybe expected, was the fact that depending on the character of the slave owner, that is what determined how well the slave was treated. So there were good, quote-unquote, slave owners that respected them, that respected the slaves. But there were also really harsh ones. And just because you treated somebody respectfully and and honoring in a certain way, that didn't mean you didn't look at them like an object. That didn't mean you didn't look at them as a tool for your financial gain. Because, again, that was an embedded worldview. Okay, everybody got that? Good. Roman slavery? Sweet. So... Take your Bibles out. Again, page uh, 1202. If you don't know what this is an image of, this is actually an image uh, down south of a, a slave block, of an auction block, where people would stand, slaves would stand on that to be bitted in our land also. So I'm going to read a small section at a time and make a couple comments Um, As we go through this. So, starting in verse 1 through 3, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul starts off by identifying himself as a prisoner, which he is a prisoner, but it's interesting because usually he uses the word slave or bondservant, if he doesn't use that word, he uses the word apostle. And so there might be kind of a play, uh, like an empathy or a a sympathy kind of thing here, that I am a prisoner for the gospel of Christ, that I am this place. I would have thought if I wrote the book of Philemon, uh, that I would have used um, servant, because it would have seemed to put us on the same level. But Paul decides to use the word prisoner, prisoner. And so he uses this once in Ephesians and everywhere else, it's servant- or it is an apostle. And who is he with? Who's in the text writing this letter with him? Timothy. So this is kind of important because this, Timothy was being trained up to be some kind of an apostolic pastor, as we know through his books. Um, But this letter in general is not a prophetic book. It has a little bit of prophetic in it. It's not really a preaching book, but what it is, it is a pastoral book. You know, there is not this high Christology in this, or there's a lot of ecclesiology about the church, but in a very hidden way. It's not, you know, um, Galatians or Ephesians or anything like that that gives us broad sweep. It is very pastoral in nature. And so we have Paul and Timothy there together writing this letter, even though Paul is the primary voice. And to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And so he's starting to build Philemon up here. He's a fellow worker, sy- sy- synergos, which we can hear the word synergy in this. He and Paul are actually working for the same goal, right, in the gospel. So Paul is saying, like, you are my f- beloved fellow worker. You are dear to me. I am affectionate towards you, Philemon. And we're kind of on the same team. We're all about the gospel and the things that we're doing for the gospel, we're co-laboring in. So Paul is kind of setting this stuff up for what Paul is actually going to ask of Philemon And then we have uh, two other people, possibly, though we don't know, Philemon's wife and Philemon's son. Don't know that. And the church in your house. So who is this letter addressed to? Philemon, uh, yeah, his family and the church. All of those together. So it might be directly directed at Philemon, but it's actually for the whole church that meets in his house. Right, because he's uh, upper crust. Again, they would be gathering in um, probably the wealthier Christians' homes at this time, and so it, it kind of—if you imagine it in your brain—it's different. If that, if I write a letter to Josh, okay, Josh Wanamaker, if I write a letter to you, it's different to picture Josh getting that letter and sitting in his study with, surrounded by books, with his cup of tea, and rolling out the scroll, maybe putting on his spectacles and reading it over in the quietness of his own place. But this isn't just to Josh. This is to Josh and to Bethany and to the whole church that meets at their house. So as you picture the reader reading this, you have to picture that the whole church is there. And I'm directing, if I'm the reader, I'm directing it towards Philemon, towards Josh, but Bethany's hearing it and everybody else around is hearing it. And that's scary, right? Like it's one thing if you're going to write something that's kind of uh, uh, heavy to one person and it's in the quietness of their own home. It's another thing when you have 30 people listening to what's going on, including the other slaves that are in Philemon's house. So you have the church there that meets, but then it's not like the servants are going to be around doing things. And so all of these people are going to be hearing this letter. And they're not only going to be hearing about it, they're actually going to be hearing it performed. So in the past 15 or 20 years, this new biblical studies stuff has come out about performance criticism, where they now have records that these letters that were written weren't just taken and just read like, uh, like a robot, but rather the person that read it more than likely was trained on how to read it. And so it's very likely that as the reader, um, uh, Tychicus, um, comes, he has been trained by Paul. So Paul and his scribe wrote the letter and Timothy wrote the letter, but then he trained this messenger to go. And so I'm here, the reader, but I'm performing it. What does that mean? That means Paul has told me when to look at Josh directly. When when I say a sentence that I actually look over here, maybe at the, the slaves that are still in his house. When I look at... Onesimus over there, when I look at his family. And it also, what kind of words are being stressed in this letter? Because you can have a short sentence and you can stress different words. And by depending on what kind of nuance you give to it, it's saying something, it's drawing attention to something that um, would be heightened in the text. We don't really know what words were stressed, obviously. But we can also kind of... Um, with respect to the text, make some assertions, make some guesses in that. So again, Paul's writing this with Timothy to the whole church. Put that in your brain, in your imagination, as you're imagining me reading this letter. I'm the reader. I'm going to be looking at Josh sometimes, who's Philemon. I'm going to be looking at Onesimus, who is going to be Ben. At times I'm going to be looking at the, the, the family. Other times I'm going to be looking at the household slaves. Verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Philemon. So, the first you... In verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father is singular, in, or sorry, plural in nature. The you at the very last uh, uh, sentence, verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit is also plural in nature. So he bookends it uh, with the plurality that I'm addressing everybody, but all the other yous now are singular, which means who's it towards? Philemon. So again, it's to everybody, but it's to Josh. It's 2 Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to put some emphasis here um, of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. All the saints. Why? Why would he possibly be, um, in my sanctified imagination, saying all the saints? Yeah, Onesimus just became a saint. And he's saying, this grace and this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you have for the saints, thank you for having that for all the saints. All of them. And I pray that the sharing or the koinonia, the communication, the fellowship of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing, that is in us for the sake of Christ. And again, Philemon or Paul is kind of setting up Philemon a little bit. He's giving he's he's um encouraging him. He's saying truthful things about how he sees Philemon. He's kind of building him up. He's saying that you you show love towards all the saints. Can't wait to see what's going to go on in all every good work that God has for us. You know, he's kind of setting him up. Cuz at this point Philemon doesn't know why Onesimus is here, why the reader is here, and what the request of the letter is. For I, Paul, have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So thank you, Philemon, thank you, Philemon, for giving rest to the hearts of the saints. And so there's the setup, and now we get kind of to the um, recommendation, so to speak. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So here, Paul knows that in this situation, he could command him as probably a spiritual father to Philemon, but he also knows that Philemon needs to choose what is right. And so he's saying, he's like saying something but not saying something, or he's not saying something by saying something. It's like, I could tell you what to do but rather I want to appeal to you because he wants Philemon to choose this himself because this is his household. Authority in his household, quote unquote, ultimately rests with uh, Philemon. And so Philemon needs to make this choice out of his own accord. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, so trying to get some sympathy there maybe, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So one of the uh, commentators I listened to about this, he has this interesting thing where um, f- for letters to be read or epistles at that time to be read, it wouldn't have been like this in kind of an Anabaptist tradition where everybody's quiet and semi-falling asleep and that kind of stuff. It would have been more in a, in a more Pentecostal tradition where there would have been call and response. where there, Like if you heard something, you'd be like, preach it! Or if you heard something, Amen! Or if you heard something like, "Uh uh-oh, like it would have been more communal than we're used to in this spot. And so can you imagine this, though? Because Paul is calling Philemon a child, his child. That is both a heartfelt thing, and it's also a status. And so while we can't really wrap our heads around that, like this would have been a huge deal. Like people would have been like, did he just call the slave his son? A technon? No. No. And now the tangibility of what this gospel might mean is starting to kind of seep out through the words, being like, "What? What does this mean?" I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, spiritual father. He didn't birth him, obviously. Formerly, he was useless to you. And now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And so Paul here is using a rhetoric device, a play on words. You might see in a little footnote at the bottom of your uh, Bible that what does the name Onesimus mean? Useful. Useful. It means useful. His name means useful, and this was common. If he was born into slavery, whether it was through Philemon, um, uh, a slave of Philemon's they was born into, or whether he was bought, usually slave owners... Uh, named their slaves, and it wasn't like something glorious, usually. It was something like this, Onesimus, you're useful. And so Paul is using this play on words. Formerly, he was useless to you because he ran away. Something went down. We don't know what. But now he is indeed useful to you and also to me. So he's saying that I see value in this person. I see value. I, Paul, see value in Onesimus. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And so Paul's thinking about this ahead of time. Paul is kind of stuck here because he's sending him back to him. According to Paul being a good Jew in Deuteronomy, let's say 23. I think it's 23. might be 32. I'm not not dyslexic, but it might be 23 or 32. One of the, one of the things that it says is that if a, a slave escapes from his master, you are not to return him. You are to actually harbor him. You are to take care of him, and you are not supposed to take advantage of him. And so Paul, as a good Jewish man, saved by the grace of Christ, knows this. Now he's in prison, it's a little bit different, right? But the conflicting worldview there is that according to Roman law, what's going on? Is that by law, he needs to return Onesimus back to Philemon, or he will be punished, uh, flogged, maybe even killed. There would be severe consequences if he didn't do that. And so Paul is in this this juxtaposition of um, what's going on here and what's going on here, and he needs to kind of create a third way. And this is where we kind of get to the idea of using broken systems in order for some type of redeeming life to come about. Paul was scared to die, sure. He was also in prison. What more can they do for, to me? Well, they could kill him. But I think there was something else going on in Paul's mind and heart, that he was trying to think of the one that he loved, Philemon, the slave owner, and the one that he loved... Uh, Onesimus the slave and he was trying to think of the gospel of Christ in this situation of the great leveling of the high being brought low and the low being brought high and that there's neither slave nor free anymore and what does that mean? And so he chooses to send Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter and with a reader. And he says in it, I'm sending Onesimus back but I'm really sending my own heart. So he's kind of saying if you do anything to him you're going to be hurting me because this is my very heart. Because again, remember, Onesimus, sorry, Philemon had the right as a Gentile Roman uh, citizen to punish, severely flog, or to kill Onesimus coming back. And so Paul is kind of setting up this protective layer just in case Philemon is off his rocker and he's forgetting the grace that came to him. I would have been glad to keep him, Onesimus, with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own free will. Again, he's reiterating the same thing. Yes, we can be commanded in the Lord about certain things, but there's other things that we need to choose for the betterment of the gospel. There's... A whole bunch of opinion on what those things are. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, and this, to quote somebody else, this is where the mic dropped. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you. Both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul has already identified Philemon as his child. And now he's going and saying, he's actually also my beloved brother, and he's not only my beloved brother, Philemon, he's your beloved brother. And so he's using these terms, which were, oh, he's a brother, sister, son, that had uh, uh, significant social status in that culture. He's no longer a slave. You need to receive him back, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And I, uh, excuse me. And he, and he is this to me and also to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I'll tell you what I think it means, in the flesh and in the Lord. I think that Paul knows that this letter is going to be read to everybody, including the slaves. And so when he's saying in the flesh and in the Lord, I don't think he's related to Philemon. Uh, I don't think Philemon and Onesimus are related to each other, which would put a whole different kind of thing to go on there. But I think what he's saying is that he's hinting out, not explicitly, but implicitly, that he is basically an image bearer, that he is worth value regardless if he is in the Lord or not, meaning regardless if he is a Christian or not. And so this is giving a little bit of leeway that if the slaves over here that aren't Christians, they might be thinking, oh, Onesimus is going to get out because he's a Christian. So if we become Christians, then we can have this new social status. But I think what Paul is kind of um, tenderly talking about here, is that these people, Onesimus, as a slave, actually needs to be seen as something more than a slave, regardless if he's a Christian. But he is a Christian in the Lord also, so even more so. And so this kind of gives a freedom in Onesimus's house, sorry, in Philemon's house, that people aren't just going to say, oh, well, Onesimus became a Christian and he was freed, he had a different status within the household, so now we're going to But rather, the way I imagine it is that those slaves are going to hear this and be like, what is this gospel? What is this thing that tells him, our our master, to treat us all better than everybody else in the world is treating us? What is this thing that is going on between him and Onesimus as brothers and child and father with Paul? And so instead of it being... Uh, the the slaves responding out of, I want to get something from the gospel, quote-unquote, get something from the gospel. I think this is just a little bit of an impression of what's going on here, and it sparks their curiosity. We don't know that. I don't know that. That's how I read the text. So, if you consider me, verse 17, if you consider me your partner, uh, Koinonia, your uh, uh, person of fellowship, receive him... As you would receive me. So, Paul sends him and he sends his own heart. Now he's saying, receive him and receive me. Again, if you do anything to him, you're going to be hurting me and my heart. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. So, again, he's saying something here without saying something. He's saying, you know what? You owe me your life. But let's just forget about that. If there's any kind of debt that Onesimus has, charge it to my account. This debt could be, again, when slaves ran away from their masters, they would steal stuff in order to uh, have enough to get to wherever they were going. That's, just a, that's a common known fact of that time period. It could be that Onesimus, um, because he was working with Paul, Philemon was like, I lost three months of labor from him. And again, we're thinking, well, that's, he's being a jerk. He's looking at him as an object, but that's his embedded worldview. And so Paul is saying, he was useful to me. As a brother, as a, as a servant, he did things for me, and, we, and he came to know the Lord. Let me pay you for his work because he is so useful to me. But I also think he's useful to you, Philemon. I will repay it. I will repay it. And Paul says that he writes this in his own uh, ugly handwriting. He would have had a scribe that somebody else was uh, writing this down, possibly Timothy. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So just like in verse 7 where it says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, I would like you to refresh my heart. You have given rest. You have given refreshment to all of these other saints could you please give my heart a rest? Could you please consider what the gospel means for you and Philemon and for our relationship? Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Eden, I'd like you to clean the room up. If you want to also clean your sister's room up, feel free to do that. Kind of like, you're you're such a good worker, Eden. You know, you're taking care of the house. Yeah, feel free to do more. So knowing that you will do even more than I say, so directly Philemon and Nisimus, Philemon and the other slaves. At the, same time, <laughs> was great. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So what he's saying is that I have confidence that you're going to do this, but just in case, I'm going to swing by as your prayers are answered and I'm released from prison to see how things are going. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Your there is plural. So he's speaking to everybody there in the household. Team, you can come up. So one of the things that's happening here, we don't know, this is like a dot, this is like a dot, dot, dot ending, right? Because this is only one part of the story. How did... Philemon respond. Did he was just like, whatever, Paul. Did he take it in consideration? Yada, yada, yada. What happened? One of the things that, that uh, Paul does with Onesimus and, um, and Philemon is that all throughout he's trying to level the playing field, just like we talked about for the gospel. That he's trying to put them on the same level to realize that they are both human beings. They are both created in the image of God. They are both, um, if, if I'm Paul and Onesimus is my partner, and I am Paul, and uh, uh, Philemon is my partner, then there's some kind of partnership happening here in this triangle too. And so he's trying to take these things and make Philemon especially think about what it means to view Onesimus as he should be viewed, as a dearly beloved brother, somebody that is useful, not as a slave, but as something more. And so what ends up happening is that, um, sorry, is that, Philemon himself is actually on the auction block, right? He is the one at the end of this letter standing there. All the eyes are on him. What are you going to do? And it's been said over and over again, I Paul do not want to force you even though I could command you to not you need to choose this. They all heard that. What will you choose, Philemon? What will you choose? knowing that it won't just affect the relationship between him and Onesimus, but also his whole household, his whole household. So you might have family members over here being like, now, don't, don't listen to Paul. He's a jerk. He's in prison. He doesn't know what it's like to have this kind of this stuff. And then you have the slaves over there kind of murmuring to themselves, like, what does this mean for us, depending on what he says? and What is this gospel? The, the upper crust people are like, this gospel is stupid. And it's going to cause us to lose economically. And the slaves are thinking like, what is this gospel? What could this mean for our benefit? So Philemon is on the auction block. What's going on? Again, we don't know exactly what happened. So I'm going to, again, guess, an educated guess as to what happened. You don't have to agree with me. This isn't the word of the Lord kind of thing. Um, So in Colossians, we also see... Um, some people show up. So this letter was written around 60, 62 AD, and so was the letter to the Colossians. We're not sure which one came first, okay? We're not sure if Philemon happened first, if Colossians happened first, if Philemon happened, and then there was the broader. But. So in verse seven, Colossians 4, 7, Tychicus, which who I said I think is the reader and other people think is the reader of this letter to Philemon, will tell you all about my activities, Paul's activities, he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, bom, bom, bom Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So in my imagination, in my mind, I don't know what happened with the rest of his household, but with that relationship, Philemon chose to take up Paul's recommendation. And then what he did is that as a beloved brother, he was still part of Philemon's household, but he released him in order to serve Paul. And that was almost Philemon's ministry to Paul. I, as Philemon, can't be on the road. I have to take care of things here. I need to take care of my business. I need to take care of my household. But, but Onesimus can go out And he can do this stuff. And one of the things he did is that he went with the reader of the text in Philemon. And he went and he delivered this broader letter to the church in Colossae. You know, the epistle of the Colossians. And so I do believe he was, uh, that Philemon listened to Paul's recommendation. What that meant for the rest of his household, we don't know. But even the fact that the possibility of that being broken is amazing. That that whole social structure, this whole big thing that is broken, okay, we're not going to change the world in this instant, but what we are going to do is we're going to change our household. Which again, gets to the good news according to uh, Philemon. So the love of God is so big and grand and majestic that it plays out even in our households. Yeah, there's still this problem of Roman slavery that is going on and it's huge, and it's big, and it's debilitating, and it's all this. But for right now, what does this mean to live the gospel out and the relationships that I have within my own household? It's huge what the gospel can do, and yet it is so detailed and succinct. Any debt, spiritual debt you had, is paid through the tangible and spiritual work of the cross. It's so awesome that um, Paul is willing as uh, a father to... Uh, onesimus to pay his debt tangibly right but you also hear in that especially with uh, the, the book to the colossians the idea that christ has paid our debt that all record of debt because of our sin and our iniquity and our transgression have been paid for by the cross and so paul is kind of putting himself in this interesting place because he's a minister of the cross he's a minister of jesus The gospel, according to Philemon, being touched by grace sends us into risky situations to pursue something better than freedom, belonging. Think about Onesimus. So Paul's like, hey, I have this idea. I know you got away from him and I know you're a Christian now and you're experiencing this freedom. How about you go back to him? Can you imagine being Onesimus, knowing the Roman law? Onesimus also had to choose what he was going to do and it was he going to enter that risky situation, knowing that Philemon was a Christian, but again, there's worldviews and embedded stuff there that were still being worked out. If I go into this situation, I might be killed. Onesimus had to choose, because he was touched by the grace of the gospel, and he chose to risk it, and to go back into slavery, basically, even though we think he was freed. But he had to choose that risky situation. For the idea of belonging, not just freedom. Again, freedom is good, freedom is right, freedom is all of that. But who do I actually belong to? Who does Philemon actually belong to? Who does Paul and Onesimus actually belong to? Ministers of reconciliation can use broken systems to bring about redeeming life. I said that a couple times. Huge thing of Roman slavery, not going to change the system at this time. What's going to happen, though? Minister of Reconciliation is going to come into that broken system and plant some gospel goodness in there. Change and transformation are possible, even with our embedded worldviews. That something is deep that we could, uh, at that time, that slavery wasn't uh, for ninety-nine point nine percent of the population wasn't an issue. That even something that deeply embedded could be start to be cracked and changed and transformed by the message of the gospel. And that's good news. Because there's all of us in here, at some point in our life, maybe even now, have that thought that this thing is in concrete. This thing is never going to change. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, maybe it won't. But the gospel says, but there's an option for it to change. That when we have given up on all of this other stuff, the gospel is still at work, the the spirit is still at work, the word of truth is still at work. And even in those deep, sometimes hurtful places that feel like they're never going to go anywhere, there's still hope because the gospel is still alive. So with that being said, um, let us stand and worship. Um, I'll pray for us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this short book that is in here and even thinking about the idea of so short and succinct and it's very human and there's not a ton of theology in it and yet there's a ton of theology in it. Um, So I I would ask that even though we're not in the time period of Philemon and Paul, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and to the actuality of us walking out the gospel in some risky places, in some scary places, and that we would be obedient, uh, willfully obedient to you as we listen to your words, as we listen to your heart, And as we believe um, in the gospel, that is you, Jesus, your life, death, resurrection, the gospel is, the good news is, is that Jesus, you are king. And the way that you value and validate and legitimize um, is beautiful and good and and, pushes against us sometimes, a lot of times. We thank you for your forgiveness for the things that we don't even see in our own lives where we are either oppressing people or we are giving people um, liberty that is unhealthy or we are being people that aren't seeking belonging. Thank you for your grace in our lives and help your gospel to be more tangible in our households, in our workplaces, in our schools um, as the glory of your huge kingdom vision continues to unfold. We pray this in your name, Amen. So again, the letter to Philemon didn't have a ton of high theology, and yet it speaks to some of the most core and human things in our lives. Um, Jesus is mentioned in it, but Jesus is more so um, exemplified in, by Paul, who is standing between these two parties, trying to bring bring gospel reconciliation there and so in in that vein of thought in the fact that the spirit of christ the reconciler lives in you all i bless you in the name of the father son and the holy spirit with these words if anyone is in christ they are a new creation the old has passed away and behold the new has come all this is from god who through christ reconciled you to himself and gave you the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to you, Cornerstone, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, you are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through you. I pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen.